Yeah, hi, I'm Wesley Cruces. I'm the Chief Science Officer at Colorado Chromatography Labs. about cannabis is dedicated to providing reliable cannabis science education to anyone curious enough to learn to get access to free courses and other educational resources visit learn.cacpodcast.com and become a curious about cannabis member for free the curious about cannabis book provides an incredible crash course in cannabis science through over 500 pages of content filled with photos, activities, science experiments, games, and more to help guide you through your personalized cannabis education journey. This book has become a trusted textbook in colleges and universities across North America and is absolutely perfect for serious learners, as well as cannabis educators, bud tenders, clinicians, patients, and caregivers. This episode of the Curious About Cannabis podcast is sponsored by Mary Jane Athletics and the Train with Mary Jane miniseries. Mary Jane Athletics was started by Liz Thompson, a member of the Canadian research team that was recently awarded funding from the NFL in 2022 for a series of studies examining how cannabis can treat pain and concussions in athletes. The Train with Mary Jane miniseries follows the researchers, trainers, athletes, and family members participating in these groundbreaking studies and provides a behind-the-scenes look into real-life, on-the-ground cannabis research that has the potential to save lives. Learn more about Mary Jane Athletics and the Train with Mary Jane miniseries at trainwithmaryjane.com. And if you happen to be an athlete or an athletic healthcare provider or trainer that would like to participate in these studies, go ahead and complete one of the research surveys that are available at trainwithmaryjane.com. That's trainwithmaryjane.com. And thank you very much, Mary Jane Athletics, for your support. We appreciate it. And if you'd like to sponsor the Curious About Cannabis podcast, visit cacpodcast.com slash sponsor to learn more. And now, back to the show. Hey, everybody. This is Jason with Curious About Cannabis. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. I'm excited to be getting back to these behind-the-scenes conversations. I know it's been a minute. Um, posted the most recent one of the year uh, a week ago, but since then it had been about six months. So very stoked to get back into it and be connecting with uh, a lot of friends from across the industry. Um, today, we're going to be talking all about a lot of the uh, newer cannabinoids you're hearing about on the market, things like HHC, H4CBD, THCP, um, a lot of these cannabinoids that we're he- we hear talked about uh, primarily in the temp side of the market um, that have been causing a, a big buzz, to throw in a pun there and be a little punny. Um, but I'm here with Wesley Crucius from uh, Colorado Chromatography, who's been leading a lot of really interesting scientific work, both in the development of these compounds and studying a lot of the nuances around things that I've talked about on the show before, uh, things around like the chirality of these compounds, why that matters, whether these compounds are safe, and how to get them produced at scale. So uh, Wesley, thanks so much for uh, being willing to come on the podcast and chat about this topic that I think a lot of people have been wanting to understand what's going on from a a reputable uh, source, so to speak. 
Yeah, thanks, Jason. I appreciate you taking the time to reach out and have me on the show. I'm super excited to uh, you know talk science. I don't get to nerd out too often. There's only a couple of us in R&D, so uh, you guys are in for a good show. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's kick us off right and say, um, give us a little bit of background into Colorado chromatography and how you kind of uh, got to where you are now in terms of you know what you're specializing in and um, you know y'all had so much uh, so many publications and patents and things that we need to dive into and everything. But let's kind of back up and go to the start. And uh, I know you're the co-founder of Colorado Chromatography. So how did this kind of get going for you? Yeah, absolutely. For me, jumping into the cannabis space, um, I like to look at the plant as like a soda machine. I've always known that something in the plant is doing something, it's helping cancer. You hear about all these people being helped by the plant. And so, you know, for me being a chemist, I thought, you know, what is it in the plant that's doing that? So the whole, uh, you know, inspiration for Colorado chromatography was let me treat it like a soda machine. Let me isolate, you know, the Dr. Pepper. Let me isolate THCV. Let me isolate CBC, et cetera. And, you know, then taking those individual isolates, what do they do? So that was basically the inspiration and the reason for us joining together uh, between the founders. It was myself, Kyle, and Alex. And then uh, a gentleman from Texas, our investor, Tim, who had exited from the oil and gas industry and was looking to jump into hemp. So... Uh, we met him and he, you know, he believed in us and he kind of full sent it. And here we are. I think we started in 2020, just right as COVID was starting. Right. And here we yeah. are in 2024 now. So. And, and was the original focus more, uh, like you were saying, THCV, because, uh, you know, HHC, THCP and all these things, they really started to take off right around the same time, 2020, 2019 or so. You know, you mm. started to to hear some of that, but was that your initial focus or something you kind of realized there was a, a big need to address? We originally focused on CBC, CBN, and mm -hmm. CBG, just making those synthetically. Gotcha. Because um, yeah. there was abundance of biomass and there's abundance of CBD isolate yes. back then. So, I mean, oh, yes. we were just taking yes. it and converting it. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was 2019 or so, there was a huge excess of, uh, hemp biomass and CBD, that was kind of when the CBD market was starting to reach its its kind of peak. And um, folks were starting to sit on a lot of CBD and say, what do I do with this stuff? Mm -hmm. um, and what, what's what's something more interesting we can, we can start to do with uh, all of the stuff that we're sitting on? So for those of you listening that might not have been uh, involved in the industry at that time or, or whatever, that was a very 2019-20 is a very unique time where the hemp industry was trying to figure out what to do after CBD. What were some of your um, early clients kind of looking for or expecting when um, you were kind of saying like, yeah, we can start to look at CBD and think about, you know, ways we could um, go after these, what are often considered trace cannabinoids and mm -hmm. ways to make them not so trace. Um, was there a lot of uh, interest in that initially? Did people kind of know how to make sense of all of these other cannabinoids? Like, I'm sure they'd heard of the CBG, CBN. Those were some of the the big two initially that kind of got attention. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of clients early on were looking at Delta 8 and CBN. And yeah. the, the couple people that were making it were selling it for buku bucks. So, you know, they wanted to jump on, on in on that. 
the problem with CBN, and I'm sure everyone is aware of, it's just a nasty process like iodine. You got your sulfur egg bombs and, and you know, you can use palladium too, but that's just a, a literal bomb filled with hydrogen gas. So like not a lot of people wanted to touch it back then. So, I mean, we kind of just dove in head first on that. I mean, our first CBN reaction that we ran, it was super hot at like 160. And I remember in the booth, um, we walked out of the booth and someone came running to us and they're like, Hey, there's something going on in that booth. It's fuming. We come back and we got to get the full face mask and we got to mm-hmm. get tape and all kinds of stuff to, you know, keep the flask sealed. So it was, uh, it was interesting, but you know, a lot of people wanted CBN. So we did pretty well. I mean, we made our first kilo. We had it sold almost immediately after we made it. And, you know, that was enough for Tim to kind of back us. And, and I don't know what it's called. I don't think it's like a, a seed, but he gave us more money to scale it up. So we got it into hundred liter reactors and things like that down in Albuquerque. And it was really nice. Um, on the Delta eight side, it was interesting because Delta eight, you know, people were making it with clays or tossing acid right. or just, yeah, just chromatography on accident. And, you know, Kyle's interesting because he noticed and he said, man, this, this Delta eight could be something if only it were compliant. And in 2020, that's, you know, people were looking at the, uh, like the altitude labs, like all those guys, you know, they had, they had the testing for it. It was compliant, but, you know, Kyle made a really long HPLC method. And I mean, we just discovered everyone's stuff was hot. So. um, Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I was seeing on the, you know, I was on the testing lab side and doing R and D on that end. And, um, I remember starting to see, um, what folks were calling Delta eight you know, around 2016 or so started coming through the lab and then it kind of would start to pick up. And that was because Oregon's hemp program really started in 2014 or so with the, uh, the mm-hmm. early, that early farm bill. And, um, so we started to see a little bit of that and people would bring these things in with some expectation of what they were. And then I had the pleasure of saying, actually, it's only about 5% of what you think it is. And there's a whole <laughs> mess of other things um, in there that I can't identify because there aren't standards for any of this stuff. And um, so that was one thing that got me excited about seeing companies like yours come online that were really taking the isolation and identification very seriously because that's how we get the standards. And that's how we then, you know, uh, create these tools, like not just on the production side, but on the analytical side, the research side to have these tools to start to investigate products and and better understand what was going on. But when this all was starting to kick off, we had no standards. We had nothing to work with. It was a lot of looking at masses and, and charge ratios and things and trying to come up with your best guess of what some of those things might be. Um, And, and that's where we were. And so things have changed a lot just in that time. And we're talking just a nine year time, 10 year timeframe. And now we have standards for for some of these things. And some of that's, you know, because of the work that y'all have been doing. Yeah, the standard thing is interesting because um, when we first made, so I don't know if the audience knows, but we were the guys that made the HHC CRMs and reference materials. And what's interesting is it was in 2021 and almost nobody knew how to do it. And the testing labs, there's 17025 ISO certified mm-hmm. And they said, hey, you got to find a 17034 lab that'll right. do it for you. And I'm like, what does that mean? And so, uh, you know, we dug around and it took us quite some time, but we found a company called uh, NSI and they'll make you the CRM and make those little nice ampules for you. But 
after NSI kind of figured that out and was doing that for the hemp space, then all of a sudden we started seeing all these other companies. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I remember in one of my first ISO audits um, on the cannabis side, um, bringing up the issue of the lack of standards and things and wanting to try to understand more. And they were, <laughs> they kind of proposed that they were like, well, we need labs to do it. So why don't you just go for 170342 and, uh, and start making those. Um, it's like with what time and energy. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, it's important for listeners to understand, I think, you know, the intersection between not just, um, the product manufacturing, but how all of these pursuits feed into all of these other areas um, that that play into research, that play into safety and and all sorts of other things. Um, and, and this is all still very new. I mean, we're talking, like you said, 2020, 2021, I mean, just a few years ago. Um, and, you know, one thing I'm, I'm interested in, we're kind of diving right into things, but I've just got a lot in my mind. Um, since that time, have have you heard much about um i guess hhc fraud like now that there are standards and there's there are better ways to um investigate these products and understand what's in them how prevalent is is fraud around hhc and and thcp in those two but i'm particularly just because hhc we have a little more info mm -hmm. and, and experience with going a little further back yeah, early on, um, um, there was a, an instance where they had, um, I don't know what to call it, there's 9-NOR, 9-beta-hydroxy or HHC, and that's when you get rid of the top methyl group and you switch it for an OH. And then there's also 9-hydroxy uh, HHC, and I think yeah. if you Google it on Wikipedia, I don't know who made that page, but it's just a contaminant byproduct of making Delta-8 where you add water across the double bond. And so we were seeing that um, when, you know, HHC was booming and, you know, it was hard to get samples because people knew who I was at that point. And people still won't give me samples because they know I'll test it, run chromatography and then yeah. elucidate it. So like back then I had to get it from the vape pen and, you know, we ran a chromatography on it on the HPLC and it's just Delta A. And I'm like, well, what is this? And, you know, customers are like, well, it's, it's water extracted HHC. Whoa, so, you know, we okay. separate it away and, you know, um, one of the things I love about chemistry is the NMR is like, you can just, you know, NMR is a big magnet and molecules are magnets, they're tinier magnets, and then they right. align based on the energy. So like for NMR and that nine hydroxy HHC, I sent it off and there's an experiment called depth. I don't know anything about it other than like the important peak of interest faces downwards right. in this to go fat coh pointing down on the nmr and i was like hey this isn't this is hhc but it's not you know the hhc that's being sold on the market so i don't know i don't know what happened to those guys but that came and went and i mean it really caused the price compression because they were selling it for so cheap and so mm, I mean, yeah it was beneficial to help uh you know the consumer but at the same time you know was it safe what was it kind of thing so well, and I, th I think that's, you know, a lot of the questions that the general public has about HHC and some of these other cannabinoids is um, starting off exactly with that. And, you know, is it safe? What do we know? And of course, you know, 
related to exactly what we're saying. When we talk about HHC, sometimes we're actually talking about a, a group of molecules, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily a specific one. We have to be very careful, uh, you know, and kind of what what we're talking about. And to the general public, like that's extremely confusing. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the questions the general public have, they're kind of loaded questions. Um, cause just starting with that, you know, is HHC safe? Well, which, which HHC are we talking about and what do we have the most information? So how do you, how do you respond to, cause I'm sure you get that question a lot. Um, how do you respond to that question of is HHC safe and, and what do we know about it in that regard? Yeah. So, um, when we started and launched the HHC, I, uh, I took it upon myself to contact a company called Charles Rivers Labs. And so they're like the most largest, them and Eurofins are like the largest yeah. uh, consumer safety uh, company. So what we did was we went out and verified, you know, we got enough data to basically make an SDS. So like, is it okay for your liver? Is it okay for your lungs? Is it okay for your heart? Does it turn off the herd? Uh, yeah. Is it okay for your nervous cells, your nervous system cells, so your brain cells? And then also is it mutagenic? And so we compiled all that information. It took them quite a bit of time um, and it was okay for everything. Um, in high concentrations, it wasn't okay for your lungs, but um, when you do the math, it's like something ridiculous. If you were vaping like nonstop, just hooked up to it, like a scuba tank or something. Right, uh, is practically impossible. Out, like, yeah. yeah, like if you just stopped breathing air and you were only breathing HHC, like it's gonna- You're gonna have bigger problems. <laughs> yeah, no, we compiled all that data and uh, I sent it to uh, Cannabis Science and Technology in 2022. And uh, that was actually our first like big publication for the company. Yeah. So um, yeah, no, we were super excited about that. Um, amazing that people are acknowledging what we did and then taking it further with what they're doing, so- Right, right, yeah, and and it it also provides a, an example because I think the cannabis industry really needs to um have some examples set of how to approach these things. If you have something new, you mm-hmm. know, with the resources available, what's the best thing we can do to start to understand it before just pushing out into the market and um and consuming lots of it? And um, a lot of companies in cannabis tend to uh, um, recreate the wheel for better or worse sometimes. And so it's great to see, you know, this very systematic thinking like, okay, we've got this new thing. There are tools or resources available that are applied to everything else in the world to try to at least understand, um, how these things affect tissues, uh, you know, how it might affect the water supply if it got it, you know, all these things, like you're saying that are on the SDS and, um, and at least have that to work from, rather than going in completely blind. Um, and so for anyone listening who might be involved in R&Ds, a lot of science folks in the cannabis industry listen to this, you know, keep in mind, you know, like there are these tools and resources available. There are standards of practice you can do to do these things. You're not just sort of like, uh, I don't know, operating in a totally new uh, area, you know, all of these understandings from, from other fields come into play. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up um, because what's interesting is a lot of the peer review has been difficult um, because they say a lot of our work isn't novel or, you know, we want to see more data. So, like, I don't know if there's a stigma associated with it because we're not university university affiliated and, you know, it's kind of just this random hemp company that you can Google that sells things. So, like, it's been really difficult to actually get these things published, so... 
That's actually really, yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that's something that a lot of listeners, um, um, they've told me they actually want to learn more about, like, what does it take to get research out? What does it take to, um, to actually do peer reviewed research? And, um, I've brought up before just some of the challenges I've run into, um, you know, even just around cost and other things. Um, you know, a lot of folks are surprised to find out that like, uh, open source research actually costs a lot of money to publish, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and, and to, play. it is, it really is. And so, um, it's, I think it's very important. You highlight that, that regardless of the, the rigor you were applying, there was still this, um, the stigma attached, this bias attached. Um, so what, what types of, uh, resistance did you run into? Did you just have trouble getting, um, uh, publishers to take it seriously or to pick it up or um, did you have it dropped a couple times or anything like that? Yeah. So it mostly it's either we have a good chunk of data. It's just, they want to see more. So I think mm-hmm. they feel like we didn't complete the project, but that's where the project ends for us. Cause like, I don't have like an unlimited budget or I'm not government grant right, funded. Right. So like, it, that's just kind of, it is where it's is. And like, I'm just trying to tell you a story. There's no bias on it. So like, that's just where that project stops. Um, sometimes they say it's not novel enough, uh, which is okay. You know, it's always a reviewer too that, you know, hurts our feelings, but you know, nothing we can do right. about that. Well, and it's funny too, because it's like uh, not novel enough. It's like, but also science needs so much um, uh, work to be done multiple times. Like that's also part of the process. Like, it, I don't know it's kind of a weird uh, double-edged thing because it's like you also want to reproduce things a lot too. So you actually don't always want things to be novel. Um, but then also I've seen in been involved in all sorts of projects where just like you're saying, the project happens as it happens. You have the data you have. Mm-hmm. And you know the goal is just to get that reviewed and published to share it with the world so people yep. can run with that and do something else with it or whatever. Um, and again, talking about a lot of misconceptions people have, I think about scientific research, you know, a lot of papers immediately get criticized. Like, why didn't the researchers do this or do that? Or they, you know, so obviously should have done this, but there's a million variables that are going on behind the scenes that drive how a data set came to be. And just like you're saying, most of us don't have the luxury of, you know, um, a billion dollar annual R and D budget or anything like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, what's interesting for me is, I think, so when it comes to novel, for the for like the reviewers, they don't think it's novel. But when you look at the space, the industry, yeah, like it's novel for the industry, and people absolutely. are like, "Oh, wow, that's incredible! That's that's a really cool project you're working on." And you know, we like to think of ourselves as like the forefront. If you look at, you know knowledge as a set of concentric circles like you know you go to high school you go to bachelor's degree and then you know at the end you know your phd and then that's like that's new areas unexplored territory and like that's where i like to think that we're at but you know you got the reviewers that are like this data set is really cool um but like this is computational you did it on the computer there's no sales studies behind this so like why is this important and i'm like wow like I get that, but you know, um, and this is coming from like our most recent um, article that just got accepted, actually. Um, so, 
we took a bunch of analogs because, you know, there's all these analogs popping up and nobody yeah. knows what they do, right? So we took the base scaffold uh, cannabinoid and then, you know, we modified them and we put them into Schrodinger, which is just a computational mm -hmm. chemistry software. And, you know, we bound them to 10 different proteins. You know, where do they bind? Are they going to get you high? Is it CB1? Is it CB2? Is yeah. it trip b one And so, like, the reviewers were like, this is super cool, but, like, I don't care for this data because it's not in sales studies. And I'm like, well, that's fine. But, you know, for one sales study on one compound, that's 800 bucks. Like we're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars. And for, I wouldn't say for what, but at the same time, like that's either something like the university needs to pick this up after I put right. this out or the government needs to pick it up. Like, like you said, I'm just trying to do, I'm just trying to get it out there and bring the awareness to it so that someone, you know, maybe not now, maybe not next month, maybe not next year, mm -hmm. but someone at some point will look back and they say, Hey, like, why didn't they do this? Let me do that. You know, they'll be in that position to do that. Well, I mean, you know, to, to take this to the grandest of, of scales, kind of, you know, that's kind of what Mashulam did in the sixties, looking at a lot of incomplete research from the forties from chemists and saying mm -hmm. like, Oh, look, Hey, you know, all we need to do is take this to, you know, use these technologies and use our resources and we can, you know, elucidate these things way better and, and, uh, learn a lot more. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the whole, it, you know, I totally understand, um, that frustration Absolutely. because ultimately it's about just ensuring that how that data set was put together was done in a, um, reliable way so we can trust that data set. And mm -hmm. then it's all about what it inspires after that. Um, and, you know, and there may be some graduate student that sees that paper and is in the perfect position to, you know, do those cell studies in a way that doesn't break a bank or, you know, fits mm -hmm. into a budget somewhere. And then we've got that data partnered with this data, you know, and it just snowballs from there. Um, so it's unfortunate to have reviewers like that, that kind of have these, uh, uh, to me, that kind of like misses the point of science altogether. It's like, yeah, it could, I could always, we could always do more and be more, but it's just about what we have right now. And then thinking about what it's going to inspire later. And that's, that's what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. uh, no, absolutely. Um, so, so I'm glad you brought up that study. So super, super cool. Do you want to, uh, since we're already talking about it, um, what were some of your primary takeaways from looking at um, at those results? Because you did see some interesting things. Again, given it wasn't in cell studies and everything, this was computational. However, mm -hmm. more and more as we're you know progressing, these computational studies um, hold up quite a bit and do translate into um, into things that you're you know almost certainly going to see in the cell studies as well. You can predict with a, um, a much higher degree of certainty than we've ever been able to. Um, mm -hmm. that, that being said, what were some of your main takeaways from the study that really got you excited? Yeah, some of the biggest takeaways is, you know, um, if you look at cannabinoid structures, the tail, the tail yeah, makes yes. a huge impact. The bigger, the bigger you can make that tail. So for example, adamantyl, which is this big cage molecule, you put that in there. I mean, and, and it's something that sticks to CB1, it's going to stick to CB1 and it, it might not let go. Yeah, um, yeah. So you end up in that like whole JWH, uh, AH, or yeah, Hoffman, yeah. Those, those types of compounds where they're just stick and then you're like, man, I've been high for a long time, you know? So um, yeah. that SAR, that structure activity relationship is kind of the big thing that we saw there is, you know, we took the basic structure and we modified it heavily 
and we saw where it went. Um, we learned that CBC really doesn't stick anywhere um, other than like the trips. Uh, so that's like inflammation. Yeah. Um, you know, I had some oncology project uh, for the longest time since 2022. And, you know, I've been trying to figure out what and why and how. And, you know, digging around, I found a protein called PAC-1. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I put that protein and I found those 40 cannabinoids in there. And I found a couple that stick to PAC-1. And I'm like, well, hey, maybe this is the reason. Because in the literature, I think they already took CBD and put it into PAC-1 and it got rid of uh, some kind of cancer. I don't remember which one it was. But, you know, seeing that data there, I mean, just helps me yeah. understand why, again, coming back to the plant, like, why did that guy, you know, he got cancer and then he smoked weed for like three, four months. And all of a sudden he's fine. You know, why did that happen? How did that happen? And so the computational studies is the first part of the medicinal chemistry where you, you know, you have a target and you know what the structure fits in there and you can fix the structure, but then you make the compound and, you know, you put it in cells, put it in rats, get it approved, and then you can put it in people and, you know, start that long chain of getting uh, from conception to commercialization. So that's right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and this also highlights, um, that's cool. You know, you're talking about CBC with the trip V1s for anyone listening who hasn't heard any prior episodes on the endocannabinoid system or the endocannabinoidome, you know, TRPV1 receptors are, uh, considered a critical part of the endocannabinoid system now. Um, uh, just like cannabinoid receptors, um, and everything else. And, and CBC has a very interesting, um, geometry to it compared to a lot of other cannabinoids. Like you're saying, you know, THC. I think some folks, even if they're not chemistry majors or anything, they are familiar with what that molecule looks like, and they know what you mean when you're talking about a tail. Um, and when we get into things like CBC and CBG, we get into very interesting um, shapes of these molecules that are, you know, kind of different, kind of multiple tails sometimes. And um, and uh, at one point, I the only time I've ever had a chance to talk to uh, Dr. Mashulam was through email, but we talked about this topic of uh, how does the shape of the molecule influence um, receptor activity and stuff. And he, he was just like, you know, pay attention to uh, the number of rings, the length of the tails um, and that sort of thing. And that kind of sent me on a whole journey of starting to pay attention to that sort of stuff. But for anyone who hasn't like that, it's a study like this highlights the, the shape of the molecule matters, the length of some of these like appendages of these molecules and things matter quite quite a lot and this kind of pushes us into talking about thcp i know people want me to talk about thcp there's a Mm. lot of interest in it so we might as well go there um so thcp is one of these molecules that kind of demonstrates exactly what you're talking about um uh the tail is different different Mm -hmm. activity so let's uh start to unpack that a little bit if you don't mind kind of saving it for you, if you don't mind explaining to folks who may be unfamiliar, what is THCP and how does that fit into things and what have you learned about that? Yeah, so THCP is tetrahydrocannabiforol and on the tail, on regular THC, it has five carbons and for THCP, it has seven carbons. And so uh, when you look, if you set THC to zero or one, just a general number, and then you put THCP on on a scale to try to explain how it impacts CB1, it's like 30%, or sorry, I'm sorry, it's like 30 times stronger than the base. So 
And you can see that in the binding studies uh, using the computational chemistry is, you know, if you put THC to one and you put CB or THCP in there as well, you'll see the docking score go down. So in computational chemistry, the more negative the number, the less the number, the more it binds. And so it's interesting because, you know, um, you'll talk to people and they're like, oh yeah, I tried some THCP and, you know, I, I, we were talking to a customer that we were trying to win over and he's like, yeah, my girlfriend tried THCP and she was high for like three or four days. And that's insane to me. So yeah, like a lot of the products have nothing in there. So. Well, yeah, I guess that's another thing. Um, going back to this question of, uh, fraud and everything else, um, mm. A lot of these THCP products, do you believe they actually have THCP in them? Or um, are people getting some like uber agonists that are just, you know, they're just slapping THCP on a on the packaging? You know, I've seen it both ways. I've seen, you know, 90% Delta 8, maybe like 2% THCP. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I've not seen it firsthand, but I've heard of it. So let me rephrase that. Yeah. So I've heard of people, uh, you know, they might be switching these cannabinoids out. So they'll say it's THCP, but mm-hmm. it could be AB Fubinaca or something insane in there. And like, I think in, I was living in San Antonio in 2014 and I remember like the head shops were getting busted for spice back then. And right. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. Like that could be coming back. Cause I know the industry and the space is like, well, what's new? Like every other month I get a, an inquiry saying what's new. And I'm like, well, there is nothing new. There's just stronger analogs or, you know, complete fully synthetic cannabinoids. So that to me, if that is popping up, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. I think that's going to you know, keep this prohibition feeling going longer. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's been a concern of mine um, for the same reason, just seeing it's the same mentality that drove us there in the nineties. Um, and in the early two thousands, I remember when I was growing up, spice and K2 were very popular among people that were like football players and stuff that needed to pass drug tests. Um, mm. and then you'd hear these kind of horror stories where, um, like you were saying, they were like high for days or they, uh, would have these vomiting episodes or, um, get dizzy and fall and hurt themselves, all sorts of different things. Um, and then there was a bit of a crackdown on that and it settled down for a while, but you're right. There's a, there's a reemergence of that mentality of what's the next thing that we can try that will drive similar effects to THC. And, um, that awareness is really, is really not there among most consumers. And so they are very, um, reliant on just immediately what the packaging is presenting. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and they also, and really they should, there should be no expectation that they should be able to read COAs and stuff, but that's kind of where we're at. If you you really are trying to consume products that, you know, you really know what they're, what's in them, you really should be able to read COAs and, and decipher that. But, um, yep. I I've seen just all sorts of things, um, out here a lot with delta 9 thc in it that doesn't say it has delta 9 lots of things that say it's uh like thcp but like you're saying it's mostly delta 8 maybe with like a little bit of thcp in there or Mm -hmm. uh maybe a little bit of thcv in there sprinkled in but it's you know mostly delta 8 um and it's it's really been all over the place um so that's that's been a little concerning to me just in that folks don't really understand um 
what they're consuming and they're not always getting it from a reputable supplier yep. that's doing all of the R&D like Colorado Chromatography is, you know, where you've got not just um, the identity data, but safety data and all these other things. I mean, there are producers um, producing huge quantities of things that they're labeling as Delta-8 um, that are all sorts of things or THCP or whatever. So um, I hope that in this conversation, people are realizing that there's a lot of nuance to pay attention to. And that while, um, you know, like you're saying, HHC seems to be very safe in terms of comparing it to anything else and exposing it to tissues and stuff. Um, but you need to make sure that's actually what you're consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same with THCP. Um, another compound I wanted to ask you about, cause I want to make sure we don't run out of time that some folks haven't heard of, um, but it's one that you've worked with quite a bit is mm-hmm. H4CBD, the hydrogenated CBD. Um, yeah. that's one that's kind of newer to the market. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So like Jason said, H4CBD is the hydrogenated analog of regular CBD. And, um, the whole reasoning for us making that is, um, there's crystal resistant distillate out there. Yes. And, you know, for me, it's, uh, it's helped, it's helped for vapes. So like if you make CBD vapes, they'll crystallize. People don't want to use PGVG anymore. They don't want to use MCT oil. So crystal resistant, uh, crystal resistant distillate, you know, is composed of a ton of minor cannabinoids and, you know, these plant byproducts. And so the reasoning for the H4 CBD is that, you know, once we made it, uh, it stays as a distillate, it's an oil, it's oil at 99% purity. And so, you know, coming to market with it, we thought people were going to use it for, instead of the crystal resistant. And, you know, it really didn't take off that, that well, um, it is psychotropic. I mean, it, it's probably like, if you took a lot of CBN, you'd probably get high and it's the same concept with the H4. Yeah. Um, but it, it didn't really take off because I think everyone is just interested in that. What's new. So, you know, what's new, what's the new alphabet soup cannabinoid that's going to get you high. So, um, luckily for us, the H4 CBD, um, you know, we made a bunch of analogs and uh, a bunch of different things based off the scaffold. And, you know, we took them in the freezer and left them. So good. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, from my perspective, there's so many different, um, applications for stuff like that. And particularly where I am now, so in Mississippi, they have uh, potency caps on mm-hmm. cannabis products. Um, on extracts, the cap is 60%. So um, you have, in general, everyone in Mississippi that's producing uh, vapes for the medical market here is cutting those vapes. And it seems, from my experience, just looking around and seeing, it seems like they're, again, kind of reinventing the wheel. Um, they started out just cutting with CBD. And, um, I had someone ask me, they were like, what's with the, uh, vapes that have the crystals in them. And I was like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And, um, what I realized that they were talking about is they were starting to see CBD crystallizing in their, um, in their vapes. Cause they just, yep. that was, you know, they were just straight up cutting it with that. And when you've got 30% or more, just you know, decarboxylated CBD sitting in there. Um, it is, it's, it's going to start crystallizing. CBD mm-hmm. loves, loves to do that. Um, and so when I learned about hydrogenated CBD, I was like, oh my gosh, what a perfect application. Um, you know, if there was a way to, to use it, 
um, where these vapes have to be cut with something in order yep. for them to be legal. Um, so this is a perfect thing to to be able to use if if you wanted to go the CBD route, something that is going to maintain the same consistency you need it to be, even when it's pure, so you know you're not going to run into that problem. Um, so I think it's one of those tools that is just going to take a while for people to realize its place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I do think it will come because there's got to be more people like me that saw that and got excited and recognized, you know, the actual, uh, uh, application. And that's just one application, but, um, you know, there are all sorts of applications where you actually want your cannabis product to maintain a, a liquid consistency, um, yep. it, you know, with edibles and stuff too, depending on what you're making. Um, so I don't know, maybe this conversation will help highlight hydrogenated CBD a little bit so people can, uh, think about it a little more. Cause I think it is an awesome uh, thing to have available. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, with the H4 CBD, we did the same thing. There wasn't a CRM, there was no, nothing out there. So we repeated the playbook. We made the CRMs for both of the diastereomers or epimers, whatever, whatever you want to call them. And then um, we did the safety studies on that as well. And that for some reason took, took forever. Um, Cause I think 2020, Two was like a really busy year for Charles Rivers. And then that actually got published in uh Pharmacognosy magazine yep. uh, through Sage Publications. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I was I was really excited to see that. And then what you just mentioned segues us into one of the other big areas of discussion I wanted to get into, which um mm-hmm. let's talk about enantiomers and chirality um mm-hmm. of these molecules. Uh it's something that um a lot of both consumers and producers don't know a whole lot about or know why it matters. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to just open up the floor because I know that you've thought about this quite a bit in the context of, um, you know, several of these different targets that we've already talked about, HHC, um, H4CBD and others. Um, first, assuming that some of our listeners don't have a strong chemistry background, can you explain um, what chirality is? how it applies to what we're talking about and then what you've learned about these molecules and why folks should maybe uh, pay very close attention to, let's just say, whether they have the right hand or the left hand of of HHC and other molecules. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess a, a really quick down and dirty uh, chirality lesson is if you look at your hands and assume they're molecules, um, they have a mirror plane. So it's the same molecule but they look different and they can't be put on top of each other. So right. when you look at HHC, um, there's that top methyl group on the ring. And so that top methyl group, if you look at the computer screen, it's either coming out towards you or it's pointing away from, from the computer. And why this is important, and like we mentioned earlier, the structure of the molecule does impact the relationship it has with biological systems. So um I don't remember what year the publication was from, but there is a publication out there where they tried uh, HHC on monkeys. And, you know, the one, the R isomer with the methyl group pointing out of the screen towards you, you know, that one was more bioactive than the S epimer, which is facing away from the screen. And um, so with that information, if you look at the COA, there's always a ratio of HHC and sometimes it's two to one, you know, mm-hmm. one to one, R to S. And what's interesting is uh, when we first had the CRM, 
had them backwards because uh, I missed a little blip on one of the two-dimensional NMRs. And so we actually had like more S isomer than R beginning. And then, you know, we fixed the, we fixed that issue. And I think this whole time, you know, people are looking for high R, they want high R, but as long as you have some amount of R in there, it's so much more effective than the S isomer that it doesn't yeah. really matter because before people were using it and it was fine. So, you know, and I don't know how much more bioactive it is. I, I'd have to, I'd have to go back to the data to look at that, but you know, it does, it does play an impact, but I think in the case of the mixture of diastereomers, I don't think it makes that big of an impact. And it, the same could be said for the H4 as well. So the main thing that people need to know is that they're really mostly concerned with the R, but not necessarily how much R is there just as long as it's present. Is that kind of yep. the main takeaway? Yeah. Like I'm pretty sure. And you know, a project of mine that I've been working on for years is how to make only R and only S, mm -hmm. you know, once someone figures that out, I guarantee you, if you tried only R and then, you know, you took a day off and then tried only S you would tell the difference. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And um, it also a sort of a chemistry vocabulary word for people to think about that are listening to this is racemic mixtures. Um and so, you know, in, in chemistry and in product manufacturing, natural products and stuff, you deal with a lot of times with what are called racemic mixtures, which is you're, you're getting a, uh, a mixture of these, these different versions of the same molecule blended together in some mm -hmm. form. And um, how, what are the, uh, just to nerd out a little bit, what are some of the, um, kind of technical limitations that drive how hard it is to focus on one or the other or to get them separated? Yeah, so there is a paper, I think it's 2008 by a group in China. They actually started with chiral terpenes mm -hmm. in the olive tall and they connect them together and they get their desired um, diastereomer. But um, you also make like a weird CBG contaminant. And so like for manufacturing, it's just not, it's not gonna happen. Uh, you need like, for example, SCCO2 or chiral HPLC to separate them. But um, when it comes to just separating them, what we did was we just used supercritical CO2 with isopropanol and water, and nice. they came out uh, pretty pretty pure. So if you look at HHCCOAs, there's three peaks normally. There's the first one, which is S, then the large one, which is R, and there's always a little blip. Mm -hmm. That's another isomer of HHC, but even the guys at... Um, Get the name of the company, Averica, also known as Neofarm now. Mm -hmm. um, those guys are like world-renowned experts at supercritical CO2, and they couldn't separate that that last HHC isomer from R. So there is another one in there, and you know it's really hard to separate these things away from each other. Um, in terms of synthetic chemistry, it's easier just to start, I guess, on small scale. It's easier to start with the chirality installed instead of trying to you know dig yeah. your way out of a hole at the end. So. Yeah, that's a good way to put that. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to get into, because I think there are some misconceptions around um, the synthesis process and stuff like that around some of these molecules. So I wanted to make sure to hit on some things that I think a lot of consumers maybe worry about or mm -hmm. or misunderstand. One, uh, one thing that I, I hear a lot and have to correct sometimes is there's a concern about metals contamination because metals are used to drive the uh, the synthesis, which 
there's a, <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of funny in a way um, to think about if you like know the details of, of how that all works, but can you address mm-hmm. that concern? Cause it is a serious one that a lot of folks have. There's some people that are like, no, I'm not going to touch HHC, THCP or any of these things because they, they use metals to make them and thus they're contaminated with metals that labs don't test for. And I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Yeah, we had that problem in 2021 and we started using Galbraith labs and they were able to identify, you know, if there was palladium in there in the parts, all the way down to parts per billion. Um, I don't, um, I think we'd have to look into U.S. Pharmacopeia. I don't remember the number for like the allowable amount of palladium in people. Um, But what we did to kind of not skirt the issue, but kind of like, I guess, try to remove any issues that may arise from it is as we scaled the process, we looked outside of the hemp industry and we looked to oil and gas because mm-hmm. uh, they use a lot of uh, hydrogenation catalysts along the process to get from you know crude oil to petroleum products. And so they actually have a big ginormous skid that we found and it has a little sock and the sock is, uh, it's made out of membranes and that membrane selectively excludes the palladium, platinum, rhodium catalysts, mm-hmm. particle size. Yeah. And so in our manufacturing process, we filter using this filter and it, and it pretty much for the most part, gets rid of all of the palladium in there. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's generally my understanding. And, and this process is used in so many things that a lot of people uh, interact with every day that they don't necessarily think about mm-hmm. um, that they don't um, apply the same concern to. Um, so I think that's, you know, it's important to, point out that this is actually a fairly well-established process if you're do- if you're doing it right and mm-hmm. and and know what you're doing i guess the other the flip side to that i guess is that there are producers out there that don't quite know what they're doing that have just enough chemistry knowledge to kind of get themselves in trouble um that are also participating in the, in the industry so maybe you know on that side you know that's something to look at but uh you know my sort of understanding of it when people brought that question to me was, well, if the producer is knows what they're doing and has experience in this type of chemistry, it shouldn't be an issue. Um, it's not one that I would really think much about. Um, but, you know, it's, it's definitely something that um, I'm glad that consumers are, are thinking about it and are worried. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's good to be thinking critically and to, to be asking those questions and um, so with just a little bit of, of understanding of the process and some of the quality control that goes in, I think um, some of those concerns can be quelled. Are there any other misunderstandings that you've kind of run into around the work that you do that, um, you know, kind of keep cropping up that you think would be good to share with our listeners so they have a better understanding um, of the science and quality control that goes into everything? Yeah, for me, I think the biggest thing I see is uh, manufacturers are saying, well, yeah, this is the new analog. This is going to get you super high, you know, because they think, uh, I think, so the newest one is like the methyl ether because, you know, we saw THC, then they acetylated it. And, you know, that does impact its affinity to CB1. But then um, now we're seeing the methyl ether pop up. And, you know, I took some time, I actually got, uh, we got invited to submit a, a manuscript um, to cannabis science and technology. And I chose methyl ethers um, and we did a lot of computational work on them. We synthesized them and 
you know, surprisingly, they bind to CB2 more than they bind to CB1. So the whole trust me, bro, it gets you higher. Like that fallacy right. right there, you know, if you just put in the legwork, you know, you'll you'll learn to not waste your time. And yeah. and with those methyl ethers, um, so the computational chemistry also gives us some insight on heart activity, uh, HERG. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of those methyl ethers actually fail HERG. So in mm-hmm. theory, it'll turn your heart off. And we saw this with H4CBD. And, you know, we had to go and do two more tests. So like, it'll turn your heart off, but then on these other two channels, it turns that on. So then all of a sudden, you know, your heart turns off, but it turns this on. So you get your butt on and you're fine. So, but you know, people aren't doing the due yeah. diligence on the back end to just double check that. Cause for me, you know, getting into the space for the reason I got in the space, you know, why, how, what, I don't want it to end because someone says, well, yeah, this trust me, you know, and then, you know, all of a sudden we start getting reports of people, you know, getting seriously hurt. So, Right, right. And um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, you mentioned this when we first, you know, kind of started talking and about your interest coming into it, but um, your interest in the oncology side um, and the medical applications, I saw on LinkedIn very recently, you posted, you know, that you're, um, again, like very focused on connecting these two things and trying to better mm-hmm. understand um, opportunities to influence cancer research and stuff like that. So I, let's spend a little bit of time as we're getting towards the end here. Uh, I definitely want to unpack that a little bit and understand mm-hmm. some of your uh, connections to that and and interest there. Yeah, absolutely. For us, um, I think in the winter of 2021, we were making a ton of analogs, just a bunch of random cannabinoids, whatever that was super simple from CBD or THC that we could make. And, you know, we made like 30 analogs. I stuffed them in the freezer and uh, a colleague of mine um, worked on PJ34. So if you don't know what PJ34 is, it's a drug that's already been approved by the FDA, but I think it failed phase two or phase three clinical trials. And it has that boomerang core like the cannabinoids do. And so, you know, he said he was working with a professor at the University of... uh, I'm sorry, it's Wayne State University. You know, some of them are like University of and then yeah. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's Wayne State and Carmano's Cancer Institute. So they've been working on that PJ34 for a while. And they asked if we had anything that looked like it. And so I was like, well, yeah, I got all these cannabinoid analogs. And uh, to our surprise, we got a hit um, on pancreatic cancer with one, 1. 1.1 and 1.04 or something like that micromolar. Uh, against two pancreatic cancer cell lines and we were super excited um i didn't think that was good enough so i did some sar so again the structure impacts the the relationship against the biological studies and we actually got it down into the nanomolar region so like now we're playing with fire at that exactly that's that's yeah that's the sweet spot yeah yeah Yeah, we were playing with fire and then one of the other r&d chemists was like well hey you know i have a guy at wyoming and, you know, he took it, he took four, because that's all they could take. They took four compounds and they got a hit with lung cancer. So now we're like, oh, wow, like two disease states. Um, yeah. We pushed that into PKPD. We got it to be water soluble with the best available concentration in blood serum. Uh, we did our first set of rat studies. Um, I want to say like it was 2022 around the winter time that came back. On the lung cancer, we saw a 36% reduction of the tumor wow. in the rat wow. model. And then in pancreatic cancer, it was like 51%. Oh, my gosh. So, wow. 
Yeah, it's been absolutely wild. We spent 2023 going around conferences and expos, you know, talking about what we discovered. We filed the patent in 2022. And I think uh, right now we actually have the patient drive model. So at some point, some human being had cancer. They took that cancer sample out. They store it and preserve it. Then for the patient drive model, so before I need to prove that it has efficacy coming from people, right? But I can't use people. So they'll take that cancer from someone and they'll shove it into a rat and they'll repeat the rat study again. And so that's going on right now. Hopefully that works. It should work in theory, um, whether it's better or worse, I don't know. Right. But our game plan is, is to, once that study is done, uh, hopefully either raise the money or pull the money together from some people we know to then do the pre-tox and toxicology model studies in mm-hmm. route to apply to the FDA. So Nice, nice. Well, that's super exciting. I mean, just those those two targets, especially the pancreatic cancer, which for anyone listening doesn't know, I mean, that's when, if you get a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, that's one of those that um, there's often very little that can be done to help. Um, And and it's usually very aggressive, very quick. Um, So that's, that's incredible. And of course, lung cancer as well. And then, you know, getting through the exciting thing, you know, thinking about what you're going through is sort of the systematization of this, like going through the process of, okay, we develop these compounds, you know, we're seeing, you know, how they could be used, what to look for. You learn from that, you kind of dial that in and it sets you on this trajectory. Uh, that's really exciting where you can do that faster and faster and faster, um, you know, within reason and um, start to really uncover what sort of tools you're sitting on. And, you know, and that's the fun thing about chemistry, right? Is one of the fun things is like developing all of these tools with unknown applications. And then the next part is just figuring out, you know, um, is this a hammer or a screwdriver or (laughs) what do, what do we do with this and, and where can it have uh, big impacts. Um, so I'm super excited to hear about that. That is very promising. Um, and something that can continue indefinitely into the future. I mean, that leads to so many, um, other ancillary research projects and things, um, (laughs) that it really never ends. So congratulations to you. That is, that is really, really cool. Um, yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, for me, like chemistry, I got into chemistry because like, you know, the Gen Chem one labs, things change color and you're like, oh, this is so cool. Oh yeah. And then, and then like, I kind of, I have a love hate relationship with it. So like at some point in grad school, it's like, man, like, I don't like, this is super boring. You know, the application is super lame and, you know, it comes and goes, but um, on that little tour, you know, listening to the professors, like the super famous professors that are like in phase two clinical trials and, you know, like, the the sake of making molecules for the sake of making molecules isn't a value to me. It's let's make something that, you know, we can make a difference with. And that's more so why I do what I do. Yeah. And I can't think of a better way to uh, start to wrap up this episode. Um, you know, ultimately Colorado chromatography, you're, you're in the process of everything else you're doing, you're building tools for the futures toolkit. Um, mm-hmm. And um, there's almost nothing more exciting. So 
Um, with that, I want to give you the floor to close out. Please let people know how to uh, follow Colorado Chromatography, follow yourself, learn more. Feel free to let anyone know about anything else you have um, coming up in the near future. Um, the floor is yours. Yeah, no, thank you, Jason. I appreciate the time. I appreciate you reaching out and, you know, finally fi uh, making the time to, you know, have me jump on the podcast. I've been trying to jump on for quite some time. Um, if you're trying to get a hold of me, I guess LinkedIn is the best way. You can just find me, Wesley Cruces. Um, I've got an Instagram, but I rarely use it. Um, if you're trying to get a hold of Colorado Chromatography, it's just coloradochromatography.com. You'll probably spell chromatography wrong. Um, I've spelt it thousands of times over the years. Um, but yeah, uh, feel free to reach out if you need anything. Uh, looking for collaborators. I, I know I posted on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm just trying to see, you know, who's doing what, uh, what companies are doing what, and, you know, see if there's a way that together we can push this industry over the hump and have those, have pharma take us seriously and, you know, not view us as competitors, but hey, these guys have something to offer and, you know, something of value that's going to help, uh, you know, make mankind better. Um, as for upcoming things, um, I think uh, we're, we're working on some pretty big stuff. Um, we have some flow chemistry stuff that I just put out nice. on LinkedIn. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I mean, you do whatever you want with that. I have, uh, <laughs> no, no one's babysitting you. No one's telling you what to do with that. Uh, but yeah, no, um, hopefully, uh, you know, next time you hear about Colorado chromatography, it's because we're getting something FDA approved and, you know, just helping people out where they need help at, you know, their darkest time. So. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful. And those of you listening, um, I know a lot of you listening are involved in uh, either the um, science side, either with extraction or with testing or on the medical side. I know there's lots of doctors, nurses, things that listen to this. Um, go check out Colorado Chromatography, learn more about what they're doing. Like I've said, I've been following them pretty much since they came on the map um, because when I was doing my work started, you know, I started back in the cannabis chemistry side in 2013, 14 or so, I had been waiting for a company like this that would come along and would have the uh, the motivation, time, and resources to uh, you know be uh, doing the type of research they're doing and trying to understand these molecules, develop tools, figure out what we can do with them. So um, hopefully some of you that listen, you might want to reach out, get connected, see what cool things you can do together. If nothing else, follow them and see what comes next on their journey. And with that, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in once again, and I will catch you next time. Stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye, everybody. If you're curious about cannabis like me, then get connected to the Curious About Cannabis ecosystem let's learn together. Visit cacpodcast.com slash connect to join our learning community on our Discord server, and you can participate in regular giveaways, dive into the latest cannabis research, connect with certified Curious About Cannabis educators, hang out in our break room with other curious minds, and more. Best of all, it's totally free. Just visit cacpodcast.com slash connect to learn more or click connect on the Curious About Cannabis app, which is available on Android and coming soon to iOS.